You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. March 1931 by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummings. Chapter 5 The Message from Poulter. Gloria shouted, Into the tunnel! This way! She held her wits and darted to one side, with Alan and me after her. We ran through a narrow passage between two fifty-foot boulders which lay close together. Momentarily the giant was out of sight, but we could hear his heavy tread and his panting breath. We emerged, had passed him. He was taller now. He seemed confused at our sudden scampering activity. He checked his forward rush and ran around the twin boulders, but we had squeezed into a narrow ravine. He could not follow. He threw a rock. To us it was a boulder. It crashed behind us. To him we were like scampering insects. He could not tell which way we were about to dart. Alan panted, "'Gloria, this—does this lead out?' The little ravine seemed to open fifty feet ahead of us. Alan stopped, seized a chunk of rock, flung it up. I saw the giant's face above us. He was kneeling, trying to reach in. The rock hit him in the forehead. A pebble, but it stung him. His face rose away. Again we emerged. The tunnel mouth was near us. We reached it and flung ourselves into its ten-foot width just as the giant came lunging up. He was far larger than before. Looking back, I could see only the lower part of his legs blocked against the outer light. "'Gloria! Alan! Where are you?' For a moment I did not see them. It was darker in this tunnel, broken rocky walls, a jagged arching roof ten feet high. Then I heard Alan's voice. "'George! Here!' They came running to me. For a moment we stood, undecided what to do. My eyes were growing accustomed to the darkness. It was illumined by a dim phosphorescence from the rocks. I saw Alan fumbling for his vials, but Gloria stopped him. "'No! We are the right size!' We were a hundred feet back from the opening. The giant's legs disappeared, but in a moment the round light hole of the exit was obscured again. His head and shoulders. He was lying prone. His great arms came in. He hitched forward. The width of his expanding shoulders wedged. I think that he expected to reach us with a single snatch of his tremendous arms, or perhaps he was confused and forgot his growth. He did not reach us. His shoulders stuck. Then suddenly he was trying to back out, but could not. It was only a moment. We stood in the radiant gloom of the tunnel, clinging to each other, ourselves stricken by confusion. The giant's voice roared, reverberating around us. Anger, a note of fear, finally stark terror. He heaved, but the rocks of the opening held solid. Then there was a crack, a gruesome rattling, splintering, his shoulder bones breaking. His whole gigantic body gave a last convulsive lunge, and he emitted a deafening shrill scream of agony. I was aware of the tunnel mouth breaking upward, falling rocks, an avalanche, a cataclysm around us, the light overhead. The giant's crushed body lay motionless. A pile of boulders, rocks and loose metallic earth were strewn upon his head and torso, illumined by the outer light through a jagged rent where the cliff face had fallen down. We were unhurt, crouching back from the avalanche. The giant's mangled body was still expanding, shoving at the litter of loose rocks. 
in a moment it would again be too large for the broken cliff opening. I found my wits. Alan, out of here! God, don't you see? But Glora held us. The drug the giant had taken was about at its end, and Glora recognized it. The growth presently stopped. That huge, noisome mass of pulp which once had been human shoulders. I shoved Glora away. Don't look! I was shaking, my head was reeling. Alan's face, painted by the phosphorescence, was ghastly. Glora pulled at us. This way! The tunnel is not too long! We go! But the giant had drugs, and perhaps weapons. Wait! I urged. You two wait here. I'll climb over him. I told them why and ran. I can only leave through the imagination that brief exploratory climb. The broken body seemed at least a hundred feet long. The mangled shoulders and chest filled the great torn hole in the cliff. I climbed over the litter. Indescribable, horrible scene. A river of warm blood was flowing down the declivity outside. I came back to Glora and Alan. Under my arm was a huge cylinder vial. It was black, the enlarging drug. I set it down. They stared at me in my blood-stained garments. "'George, you're—' "'His blood, not mine, Alan.' I tried to smile. There's the drug he carried. Evidently, Poulter was only sending him out. Just the one drug. "'What'll we do with it?' Alan demanded. "'Look at the size of it!' "'Destroy it,' said Glora. "'See, that is not difficult.' She tugged at the huge stopper and exposed a few of the pellets, to us as large as apples. "'The air will soon spoil it.' We left it in the tunnel. I had brought a great roll of paper had found it folded in the giant's belt with the drug cylinder. We unrolled it and hauled its folds to a spread some ten feet long. It was covered with a scrawled handwriting in pencil, but its giant characters seemed thick blurred strokes of charcoal. We could not read it. We were too close. Alan and Glora held it up against the tunnel wall. From a distance I could make it out. It was a note written in English, signed Poulter, evidently to one of his men. I read it. The two men prisoners. Kill them at once. That is better. It will be too dangerous to wait for my return. Put their bodies with their airplane. Crash it a mile or more from our gate. Full directions for our death followed, and Poulter said he would return by dawn or soon after. It gave me a start. By dawn. We had been traveling four or five hours. The dawn was up there now. "'No,' said Glora. She and Alan cast away the paper. "'No, the time in here is different. A different time-rate. I do not know how much difference. My world speeds faster. Yours is very slow. It is not the dawn up there quite yet.' Again my mind strove to encompass these things so strange. A faster time-rate prevailed in here. Then our lives were passing more quickly. We were living, experiencing things, compressed into a shorter interval. It was not apparent. There was nothing to which comparison could be made. I recalled Alan's description of Poulter. Not thirty years old, as he should have been, but nearer fifty. I could understand that now. A day in here, while our gigantic world outside might only have progressed a few hours. We walked the length of the tunnel. I suppose it was a quarter of a mile to us in this size. 
It wound through the cliff with a steady downward slope, and suddenly I realized that we had turned downward nearly half the diameter of a circle. We had turned over, or at least it seemed so. But the gravity was the same. I had noticed from the beginning very little change. The realization of this turning brought a mental confusion. I lost all sense of direction. The outer world of earth was under my feet, instead of overhead. Then we went level. I forgot the confusion. This was normality here. We turned upward a little. Cross-tunnels intersected ours at intervals. I saw caverns, open, widened tunnels, as though this mountain were honeycombed. "'Look,' said Glora, "'there is the way out. All these passages lead the same way.' There was a glow of light ahead. I recall that I was at that moment fumbling at my belt in two small compartments of which I was carrying the two vials of the drugs which Glora had given me. Alan wore the same sort of belt. We had found them in the wrecked dome-room. I heard a click on the ground at my feet. I was about to stoop to see what I had kicked, only a loose stone, perhaps, but Glora's words distracted me. I did not stoop. If only I had, how different events might have been! The glow of light ahead of us widened as we approached, and presently we stood at the end of the tunnel. A spread of open distance was outside. We were on a ledge of a rocky, precipitous wall, some fifty feet above a wide, level landscape. Vegetation! I saw trees, a forest off to the left. A range of naked hills lay behind it. A mile away, in front and to the right, a little town nestled on the shore of shining water. There was starlight on the water. And over it a vast, blue-purple sky was studded with stars. I gazed with that first sudden shock of emotion into illimitable depths of interplanetary space. Light-years of distance, gigantic worlds, blazing suns off there shrunken by distance now to little points of light. A universe was here. But this was an inch of golden quartz. Above my head were stars which, compared to my bodily size now, were vast worlds ten thousand light-years away. Yet, from the other viewpoint, I had only descended perhaps an eighth or a quarter of an inch beneath the broken pitted surface of a little fragment of golden quartz the size of a walnut, into just one of its myriads of golden atoms. CHAPTER Six, THE GIRL IN THE GOLDEN CAGE "'My world,' Glora was saying, "'you like it? See the starlight on the lake?' I have heard that your world looks like this at night, in summer. Ours is always like this. No day, no night. Just like this. Starlight." Her hand went to Alan's shoulder. "'You like it, my world?' "'Yes. Yes, Glora. It's beautiful.' There seemed a sheen on everything, a soft, glowing sheen of phosphorescence from the rocks rising to meet the pale, wan starlight. The night air was soft with a gentle breeze that rippled the distant lake into a great spread of gold and silver light. The city was called Orina. I saw at once that we were about normal size to its houses and people. There were fields beneath our ledge, with farm implements lying in them. No workers, for this was the time for sleep. Ribbons of roads wound over the country, pale streamers in the starlight. Glora gestured. The giants are on their island. Everyone sleeps now. 
You see the island off there? Beyond the city, over the low stone roofs of its flat-topped dwellings, the silver spread of lake showed a green-clad island some three miles offshore. The distance made its white stone houses seem small, but as I gazed I realized that they were large to their environment, all far larger than those of the little town. The island was perhaps a mile in length. Between it and the mainland a boat was coming toward us. It was a dark blob of hull on the shining water, and above it a queerly shaped circular sail was puffed out like a balloon parachute by the wind. "'The giants live there,' said Ellen. "'You mean Poulter's men?' "'And women, yes.' "'Are there many giants?' "'No.' "'How many?' I put in. "'How large are they? In relation to us now, I mean, and to your normal size.' I turned to Alan. Poulter and Babs must be down there now. They must have arrived only recently. But we must determine what size to be before we go any further. We can't be gigantic. If he sees us, if we assailed him, well, he'd kill Babs. We've got to plan. Glora, tell us. You ask so many questions so fast, George. There are two hundred or more of the giants and there are more than that many thousands of our people here, slaves, because the giants are four times as large. This little city, these fields, these hills of stone and metal, all this was ours to have in peace and happiness, until your polter came, and that starlight on the water," she gestured, everywhere is a great reach of desert and forests, insects, but there are no wild beasts, nothing to harm us. Nature is kind here. The weather is always like this. We were happy, until Poulter came." "'And only a few thousand people,' Alan said. "'No other cities?' "'What lies off in the great distance we do not know. Our nation is ten times what is here. A few other cities, though some of our people live in the forests.' She broke off. "'That boat is coming for Poulter. He is in the city. No doubt of that. The boat will take him and that girl you call Babs to the giant's island. His castle is there. If we could get on that boat and go with him to the island, but in what size? Very small? But then, if we were very small, it would take us hours to get from here to the boat. Glora pointed out where it would land, just beyond the village where the houses were set in a sparse fringe. It would be there, apparently, in ten or fifteen minutes. Poulter was probably there now with Babs, waiting for it. In our present size we could not get there in time. It was two or three miles at least. But a trifle larger, the size of one of Poulter's giants, would enable us to make it. We would be seen, but in the pale starlight, keeping away from the city as much as possible, we might only be mistaken for Poulter's people. And when we got closer, we could diminish our size, creep into the boat, get near Babs and Poulter, and then plan what to do. Futile plans! All of life is so futile, so windswept upon the tossing sea of chance. We climbed down from the ledge and stood at the base of the towering cliff which reared its jagged wall against the stars. A field and a road were near us. The road seemed of normal size. A man was across the field. He did not seem to notice us. He was apparently about my height. He presently discarded his work, went away from us, and vanished. "'Hurry, Glora,' 
Alan and I stood beside her while she took pellets from her vials. It needed a careful adjustment. We wanted our stature now to be four times what it was. Glora gave us pellets of both drugs, one of which was slightly more intense than the other. Poulter made them this way, she said. The two at once gives just the growth to take us from this normal size to the stature of the giants. Alan and I did not touch our own vials. We had used none of our enlarging drug upon the journey. The supply she had given us of the other was nearly gone. As I took these pellets which Glora now gave us, standing there by the side of that road, I recall that I was struck with the realization that never once upon this journey had I conceived myself to be other than normal stature. I am normally about six feet tall. I still felt, there in that golden atom, the same height. The landscape seemed of normal size. There were trees nearby, spreading, fantastic-looking growths with great strings of pods hanging from them. But still, as I looked up to see one arching over me with its blue-brown leaves and an air-vine carrying vivid yellow blossoms, whatever size of the tree, my consciousness could only conceive myself as of a normal six-foot stature standing beneath it. The human ego always is supreme. Around each man's consciousness of himself the entire universe revolves. We crouched on the ground when this growth now began. It would not do to be observed changing size. Poulter's giants never did that. Years before he had made them large, his few hundred men and women. They were, Glora said, people both of this realm and from our great world above. Dissolute, criminal characters who now had set themselves up here as the nucleus of a ruling race. In a moment now we were the size of these giants, twenty to twenty-five feet tall in relation to this environment. But I did not feel so. As I stood up, still myself in normal stature, I saw around me a shrunken little landscape. The trees, as though in a Japanese garden, were about my own height. The road was a smooth level path, the little field near us a toy fence around it. In another road across it the man was walking. In height he would barely have reached my knees. He saw us rise beside the trees. He darted off his road in alarm and disappeared. I have taken longer to tell all this than the actual time which passed. We could see the boat coming from the island, and it was still a fair distance offshore. We ran along the road, skirting the edge of the little town. Its houses were none of them taller than ourselves. The windows and doorways were ovals into which we could only have inserted a head or an arm. They were most of them dark. Little people occasionally stared out, saw us run past, and ducked back, thankful that we did not stop to harass them. "'This way,' said Glora. She ran like a fawn, hardly winded, with Alan and me heavily panting behind her. "'There are trees, thick trees, quite near where the boat lands. We can get in them and hide and change our size to smallness. But hurry, for we will need so much time when we are small." The little spread of town and the shining lake remained always to our right. In five minutes we were past most of the houses. A patch of woods, with thick, interlacing treetops about our own height, lay ahead. It extended a few hundred feet over to the lake shore. The sailboat was heading in close. There was a broad, starlit roadway at the edge of the lake, and a dock there at which the boat was preparing to land. Would we be in time? I suddenly feared not. 
to get small now, with the distance lengthening between us and the boat, would be disastrous. And where was Poulter? Abruptly we saw him. There had been only little people visible to us, none of our own height. The lake roadway by the dock was brightly starlit. As we approached the intervening patch of woods it seemed that a crowd of little people were near the dock. Poulter must have been sitting. But now he rose up. We could not mistake his hunched, thick figure, the lump on his shoulders clear in the starlight with the gleaming lake as a background. The crowd of little figures were milling around his knees. In the silence of the night the murmur of their voices floated over to us. "'There he is!' Alan gasped. We all three checked our running. We were at the edge of the patch of woods. "'By God, there he is! Let's get larger! Rush him! Why, that's only a few hundred feet over there!' But Babs! Where was Babs? "'Alan, down!' I crouched, pulling Alan and Glora with me. "'Don't let him see us! He'd know at once! And where is Babs? Can't rush him, Alan. He'd see us coming. Kill her!' Of all the strange events which had been flung at us, I think this sudden crisis now most confused Alan and me. To get larger or smaller? Which? Yet something must be done at once. Glora said, "'We can get through the woods best in this size, and not be seen, get closer to the landing.' We crouched so that the little treetops were always well over us. The patch of woods was dark. A soil of black loam was under us. A thick, soft underbrush reached our knees, and lacy, flexible leaves and branches were at our shoulder height. We pushed them aside, forcing our way softly forward. It was not far. The little murmuring voices of the crowd grew louder. Presently we were crouching at the other edge of the woods. I softly shoved the tree branches aside until we could all three get a clear view of the strange scene now directly before us. And I saw a toy dock at which a twenty-foot, barge-like open sailboat was landing. A narrow, starlit roadway, crowded with a milling throng of people, all no more than a foot and a half in height. The crowd milled almost to where we were crouching, unseen in the shrubbery. Across the road by the dock, Poulter stood with the crowd down around his knees. In height he seemed the old familiar Poulter, bareheaded, with his shaggy black hair shot with white. He was dressed in earth fashion, narrow black evening trousers and a white shirt and collar with flowing black tie. I saw at once what Alan had noticed, the change in him, an abnormality of age. I would have called him now forty or older. Beyond even that there was an abnormality, a man old before his time, or younger than he should have been for the years he had lived, an indescribable mingling of something the mingling of the two worlds, perhaps. It marked him with a look at once unnatural and sinister. These were instant impressions. Glora was plucking at me. On the white chest of his shirt something is there. Poulter was coatless, with snowy white shirt and cuffs to his thick wrists. He was no more than fifty feet from us. On his shirt-bosom something golden in color was hanging like a large bauble, an ornament, an insignia. It was strapped tightly there with a band about his chest, a cord like a necklace chain up to his thick hunched neck and other chains down to his belt. I stared at it. An ornament, like a cube, held flat against his shirt-front, 
a little golden cube, ornate with tiny bars. I heard Alan murmuring, A cage! Why, George, it's— And then, simultaneously, realization struck me. It was a golden cage strapped there. And I seemed to see that there was something in it. A tiny figure? Babs. I think he has her there, Glora murmured. You see the little bucks with bars? The girl Babs, a prisoner in there. She spoke swiftly, vehemently. He would take the boat to the island. She suddenly gripped us. You think, really, it best to go? I do what you say. I had the wish to get to my father with these drugs. No, exclaimed Alan, we must keep close to Poulter. We were ready with our pellets. But a sudden activity in the road made us pause. The crowd of little people were hostile to Poulter. A sullen hostility. They milled about him as he stood there, gazing down at them sardonically. And abruptly he shouted at them in English. You speak my language, some of you. Then listen. The crowd fell silent. Listen. This is your future queen. Can you see her? She is small now, but she has the magic power. Soon she will be large, like me. The crowd was shouting again. It surged forward, but it lacked a leader, and those in advance shoved backward in fear. Poulter spoke again. This girl from my world, you will like her. She is kind and very beautiful. When she is large, you will see how beautiful. A little stone suddenly came up from the throng of little people and struck Poulter on the shoulder. Then another. The crowd, emboldened, made a rush, surged against his legs. He shouted, "'You do that? How dare you! I show to you what giants do when you make them angry!' From down by his knees he plucked the small figure of a man. The crowd scattered with shouts of terror. Poulter had the struggling eighteen-inch figure by the wrist. He whirled it around his head like a ninepin and flung it over the canopy of the dock far out into the shimmering lake. End of chapter 6 End of section 9 Thank you everyone for being patient for these these uh, current and upcoming episodes. Uh, had a rash of sickness and uh, family issues currently. And yeah, so uh, I, I now present you with uh, March... And early April on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. We would also like to welcome Gretchen Martin uh, to the cast of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. She is our, I don't know, I, I, I guess uh, one of our, our, our other horror movie experts in uh, comics uh, and uh, uh, manga and uh, a lot of uh, other stuff. And, yeah, no, no, uh, so welcome Gretchen, and check us out on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos at pgttcm, pgttcm.com, at pgttcm.com, uh, just search any of those, you'll find us eventually. <laughs> We're on Facebook. Twitter, YouTube, um, Instagram, and Gretchen's on Gretchen is Weird, I believe, on Instagram. So check her out. 
Uh, Dave's Corner of the Universe is Dave's website. Uh, he's not linking anything from us to him, but we link to him. So check out his past articles. Give him some love. Maybe he'll write some more stuff. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, if you like this show, share it. Let other people know that you like it. Uh, let me know if you like it. Uh, you can contact us at pgttcm at gmail.com. If you S-A-S-E us a envelope, we will send you some stickers or something. And yeah, so thank you. Contact, uh, message me for uh, uh, address. And uh, we'll talk to you in the future. And uh, keep, keep, keep it weird. Stay squiggly. And, uh, yeah.